Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, our girl Rachel Paris has interviewed Marilee Grindle uh, about her new book, In the Shadow of Quetzalcoatl, uh, A City in Ancient Mexico. And the research that she did is on Zelia Nuttall, who was a pioneer in anthropology. So I'm really excited to learn more about this book um, yeah. and add a little bit more Latin American history to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Brooke, I'm so excited because Rachel Perez, who is the host of Hashtag History, one of our favorite podcasts to listen to, has joined us again to interview Marilee Grindle. Uh, about her new book, In the Shadow of Quetzalcoatl. So I'm so excited. She's a professor at Harvard, right? Yes, Harvard Kennedy School. And so I got to do a little background on Marilee, our Dr. Um, Grindle. And so she has a PhD from MIT, political scientist, and she really engages a lot of her research around Latin America. So mm. has tons of publications around these topics, has really dove pretty deep around the um, basically the economics or like international development realm mm. when it comes to Latin America. So I think that's pretty fascinating and something that I don't know necessarily a lot about and also how women show up in this realm. And so yeah. she has several publications. I'm really curious to hear more. Yeah. So she's targeted this book um, to look at Zelia Nuttall, who was a pioneer in research on ancient civilizations in Mexico. So think like the Aztecs. And um, cool. I'm really excited to learn more about this because, like, this is something that not a few, not a lot of women were engaged in, like you were saying. So I think this is going to be such a neat way to better understand Latin America, and you're doing it sort of through the lens of the research of a, a woman anthropologist. So, which I think we don't see a lot of like that lens. Like I think a lot of anthropology is looked at through a male perspective. Mm -hmm. So if they see a pot, they're like well, she worked in a kitchen. You're like, but was that a pot for a kitchen? Yeah. Or is that just your bias of women? <laughs> you right. know? So well, and she's not just like some woman who happened to be on the project. Like she's sort of a big deal. Like one of the things I know about the Aztecs is their calendar and like how accurate it was. And oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. And um, she was the first person to accurately decipher it. Like Shut that's, up. that's like one of the few things I know about the Aztecs. And like she was the one who so discovered she's a major that. contributor to the, yeah. the level of research that we have in modern texts. Yeah, okay. exactly. So she's a big deal. I'm really, really excited to get into this. So, well, what an interesting area to go deep on too for Professor Grindle. Like what that must be really interesting to uncover so much stuff about this location and these women. And yeah, I'm excited to hear from her. Also, she has a great haircut. Oh. Dang. Looking at a professional photo. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we get into it, I just wanted to, you know, remind everybody that the Remedial History Project is this nonprofit that is working to reform K-12 education. We focus primarily on secondary ed, um, which is where, you know, studies show that elementary ed is actually better and more gender equitable than what happens once they get to middle high school, um, where standards are enforced and people think like, oh, it has to be real male history. And so I guess we can't talk about the woman who literally uncovered the Aztec <laughs> calendar or whatever. No, um, put her, put her down. <laughs> right. 
I'm really grateful to the people who have continued to support us. I want to give a shout out. Um, last last year, we interviewed uh, Leah Redmond Chang, who did research on some of the queens in European history. And um, she was a major donor to us this, oh, this I know. giving season. Like- what a big heart. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really special to to receive financial support from her. Um, and it just, you know, our relationships that we're building through the podcast, through the teachers that are using our resources, um, it's just been really, really special. And it is. So- it's so fun. We got a message the other day from a teacher that used one of our lesson plans in their classroom, and she just like lit a fire in my heart of how much she enjoyed doing that and really feeling like she was contributing more to her students and giving them a really equitable experience and a really whole picture of history. Mm-hmm. And not that she hadn't been doing that before, but just having a free resource from us. Yeah. She could impact that day, bring yeah. into the classroom. That's yeah. why we're doing this. That's yeah. why it's it's what it's there for. And it's really important, you know, as a board, we've had a lot of conversations about keeping our resources free and how do we do yep. that. Um, and it's deeply part of our mission and it's a regular part of our conversations. Free, 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 free. Teachers do not need to pay for things that they should just already have. Yeah. Right. Period. Um, that should be like part of curriculum they're provided for by their schools. And if schools aren't going to do it, then we're going to do it for them. And so we're people here to like, do the work. <laughs> people like Leah are making that possible. Yeah. So if you'd like to join Leah as a donor to the Remedial History Project, you can do that at remedialhistory.com slash giving. We also have a Patreon page. So if you'd like to become a patron. Um, yeah. And you get Patreon. free swag in the mail. I just got something recently. I was like, yeah, yeah. I love getting stickers and yeah. mugs and, you know, it's kind of fun and you can people are like oh my god i love that mug i'm like it's part of our hp and mm-hmm. history is her story yeah <laughs> it's good yeah i love that so let's turn it over to rachel and we'll have Marilee introduce herself take it away rachel uh, my name is Marilee grindle i live in boston um and i have recently published a book called in the shadow of quetzalcoatl Zelia Nuttall and the Search for Mexico's Ancient Civilizations. And um, this is, for me, a, a really wonderful opportunity to talk a bit about Zelia and her world. Um, so I'm very pleased to be on the podcast. Oh, we're so thrilled to have you on the podcast, especially to discuss someone that, to me, was unknown. Uh, my understanding from looking at your book was is a relatively unknown figure which is amazing since she was so pivotal to understanding like the Aztec calendar and um just so many things that we know today because of her what can you give me like a snapshot of just who she was and why she's important okay um Zelia Natal her full name was Zelia Maria Magdalena Natal which mm-hmm. I love for those Wonderful, mm-hmm. soft Spanish uh, syllables and then nuttalls, um, uh-huh. kind of slap in the face. Um, she was born in San Francisco in uh, 1857, and she died in Mexico in 1933. So we're talking late 19th, early 20th century. Focus in life um, was her fascination for uncovering what Mesoamerica was like before the Spanish conquest. I mean, that was what motivated her and kept her working through um, quite a long life. 
she became an expert on ancient manuscripts, um, particularly those that were left by the Aztecs and their predecessors in, in central Mexico, and also what the uh, the Spanish friars and the soldiers who had come with the uh, as conquistadores, mm -hmm. uh, what they had written about what they saw and what they understood uh, about um, the life in uh, in Mesoamerica. So um, a lot of documents um, from the 15th and 16th century. Zelia was amazing in the extent to which she uh, was a like a bloodhound. She would track down and find these ancient manuscripts. Many of them uh, were in Europe, and they'd been sent um, back to Spain and then distributed around Europe in libraries and um, uh, monasteries and museums, and then pretty much completely ignored for about 350 years. And she, wow. she became very, very good at tracking these manuscripts down and um, interpreting, well, uh, understanding them, transcribing them, interpreting them, and using them as, as a kind of way of seeing into the life of those who had inhabited the land before the Spanish um, mm -hmm. arrived. She interpreted these manuscripts. That there are many artifacts that were sent back to Europe. Also, that she feathered um, headdresses and you know little stone statues and um, a whole variety of gold and silver ornaments and things. She was able to do a definitive. Um, uh, decoding of the Aztec calendar, which is a huge uh, wheel um, that mm -hmm. incorporates two different um, two different can uh, calendars. One is a mm -hmm. ritual calendar that tells you, you know, um, when are feast days and what are the particular gods that are to be honored on mm -hmm. particular days, and then also a, a solar calendar, which um, is a much more calendar as we know it. Mm -hmm. um, and she was able to bring those two together. Digging deep into archives and things, she came across a letter from um, someone who had been dragooned. He, he was a Portuguese pilot who was dragooned into the fleet of um, uh, Sir Francis Drake, the English pirate and seafarer and out of that, she was able to, to put together a whole series of documents that brought new light onto the explorations of Sir Francis Drake's Drake and his his behavior and misbehavior and mm. and that was um, that was something else. So she traveled all over Europe. She moved to Mexico in 1902. She bought a uh, a wonderful old house like a palace, and she became very famous. She was a hostess uh, with the mostest. Uh, anyone who came to Mexico, uh, diplomats, um, scholars, writers, journalists, and, um, you know, important people in Mexico met at her house on wow. Sunday afternoons for tea, and um, it was um, 
quite a place. Meanwhile, she continued with with her work. She became famous in in the sense of a lot of people knowing who she was um, as a result of her participation in the Chicago World's Fair of 1893. And then in uh, another World's Fair in 1915 in San Francisco, she was um, uh, declared one of the three most distinguished women in America. So she was very, very famous. She met with presidents and kings and queens, and she had support from famous scholars and philanthropists. And then she was pretty much forgotten after yeah. um, after she died, until you know a few things were written about her in the '60s and '70s when women began um, exploring. Um, for their own roots, I guess, of uh, the roots of, yeah. of, of women's history. Uh, you led me right to a question that I wanted to ask. It feels as though some of her accomplishments are large enough that we should know her name better than we do. Why do you think she's a forgotten figure in history? Um, well, I think we, we, we tend to forget people in history unless, unless they're written about over and over and over sure. again. One of the things that was, I think, most critical um, for her has to do with generations of scholars. She was one of the pioneers um, in in the field of anthropology. In fact, when she began, there was there really wasn't a discipline of mm-hmm. anthropology. There were a group of there were people who were um, either specialists in history or in classical studies or mm-hmm. sometimes medicine or geography, mm-hmm. um, who became interested in the issues that anthropologists, um, the questions that, that they were asking. Um, but there were no departments in universities. There were no degrees that you should could get. So people were basically... Um, amateurs. And because of that, um, because uh, an interested amateur who wanted to delve into finding out more about something uh, could become uh, important um, in the early days in the field. A a number of women actually became important um, in the 1880s and the 1890s. After that, by the 1920s, Anthropology had begun to be incorporated into universities. So the universities now had departments of anthropology. If you wanted to be an archaeologist or an anthropologist or a linguist or a folklorist or whatever, you went to university and you got credentials that said, I'm an anthropologist um, and I get to be an anthropologist and you don't because you don't have these credentials. And more and more universities then and university faculties determined who could be an anthropologist, who could get resources to go off and do digs and things like that. So I think in large part, um, a significant issue for Celia Nuttall was the institutionalization Mm -hmm. of the discipline. She was looked back on 
you know, by, uh, I would say, in the 1930s, in the 1920s and the 1930s, as someone who, you know, was adventurous and had brought to light some new things, sure, but um, was really an amateur, um, someone who, you know, wasn't attached to, to a university, although she was attached both to Harvard and the University of California, but that became... Uh, um, that wasn't enough, I guess, mm-hmm. to keep her um, famous the way Margaret Mead was famous, um, because Margaret Mead went to Columbia, studied okay. with the great um, anthropologist, and then went out and, as a, a documented anthropologist, I guess you would say. Um, so I think that's uh, in part why why she was forgotten. I imagine it also has to do with the fact that she was a woman, yes. um, and possibly the fact that she was known to be something of a difficult woman. So um, I'm sure that played a part. I did want to ask more about her on a personal level because I mean her achievements are amazing to learn about, but I also was really fascinated by the fact that she was a single mom and doing this. Um, you know, out of passion, that tells me a lot about her and her personality, but it sounds like there's more to her that I don't know. I would love to hear more about her personally. Through her her childhood and early life, it could not have been predicted that she would become this famous mm. scholar. She spent uh, the first eight years of her life um, in San Francisco, right after the gold, or during mm-hmm. the gold rush, really, right. and life was, um, you know, pretty wild. Um, and um, but also at the same time, very international. Mm-hmm. Um, so people speaking a variety of different languages established. Um, neighborhoods in San Francisco, and there were you could use different kinds of of money um, mm-hmm. to purchase goods and mm-hmm. and things. So it was it was a very wild place, but also a very international place. And um, she was born into a very wealthy family, and I think mm-hmm. that was important in terms of what she was able to achieve. The next 11 years of her life, she spent traveling with her family in Europe, and that's when she got her education. Most of it was through traveling, sometimes with tutors. She spent some months getting formal education um, in Germany and in Great Britain, but that was pretty much the rest of it was um, learning from traveling and learning languages and reading histories and visiting, you know, ancient sites. Mm-hmm. She returned with her family to San Francisco, met a young Frenchman, Alphonse Pinard, and they married fairly soon after they met each other. He was a linguist. He was mm-hmm. convinced, um, as many people were at the time, that there had been the 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 way that the Western Hemisphere had become um, populated was uh, through a land bridge from mm-hmm. Asia. Um, that was that was a hypothesis mm-hmm. at the time, and his work was an effort to 
by looking at languages up and down the Pacific coast and and in Asia to demonstrate that there were links in the languages that could help prove that that that's where the population of the new world had come from. That was mm-hmm. was a really big question um, in the day. He was kind of an adventurer. He was off here and there all the time. They married, um, went to France um, within, you know, when they were first married, he was, they were both dashing off to Paris and Madrid and, and um, Italy and all, and then back to um, uh, the Caribbean where he was carrying out research in Cuba and the Dominican Republic. And within two years, um, the marriage was over. Mm. Uh, the divorce took another eight years, but she was able to reclaim her maiden name wow. and to claim um, custody of her daughter, wow. which I think was very extraordinary for the time. Certainly. Um, that's when her career really took off while she was going through a very difficult time personally she mm-hmm. also began to develop a career going to mexico with her family picking up wow. bits and pieces and studying them uh she went with her family to the east coast where they lived for a while she got in contact with the curator of the Peabody Museum at Harvard, which was developing a, a tremendous collection of Mesoamerican uh, artifacts. And uh, Frederick Putnam essentially took her on, along with a number of other women, as his protégés. Um, she signed her letters, Your Goddaughter in Science, Aww. when the, 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 the S in the science was... Um, was capitalized um, because they were committed to making anthropology a science. But that's what set her on her way. And through him, she was introduced to all sorts of people who were involved in the discipline. He was the person who put together the anthropology exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair. And it was an extraordinary exhibit, the largest one that had ever been put together. Wow. Archaeologists, anthropologists, and archaeologists from all over the world came, and he invited Celia to give a paper. He asked her to be the curator of Mexican um, artifacts, and she gave her paper on the Aztec calendar, what she had discovered about it. And from then on, she was famous. She was quoted in newspapers all across the country. Wow. Um, she was invited to speak at different things. At first, she didn't want to because she said, well, you know, I, I, I'm not sure women should be standing up in front of people who know so much more than she does. You know, Within a few years, she'd become very assertive. Mm. about herself and about what she knew. She published a great deal. I think unusually for a woman at that time, she she simply insisted on herself uh, over and over and over again. If somebody wrote something um, that she didn't agree with, she published a paper letting 
the world know how how much an error this other person had been. I love that. Uh, if somebody wrote something and didn't cite her, she took them to task for it. So she she in many ways she she was a woman of her time. She was an elite member of society, and that gave her all sorts of connections to wealthy and influential people and allowed her to travel widely. At the same time, she pushed beyond the boundaries of what was expected of women of the time. And she shows us a lot about how to live in your time and beyond your time. I love that. That's a really great way to put it. She sounds like a really remarkable woman. And I like seeing the evolution of her confidence as well, because because it sounds like she maybe experienced some elements of maybe imposter syndrome at the onset of feeling like an amateur in this yeah. buddy yeah. field yes. to eventually evolve to the place of feeling comfortable, more than comfortable <laughs> with correcting the narrative if she felt it necessary. Right. I think that's really amazing. What I found most interesting about Zelia Nuttall mm-hmm. was seeing how an an individual's life provides a lens for seeing history mm-hmm. or understanding history. Mm-hmm. She was born in San Francisco. So I spent some time, you know, studying what was San Francisco like in mm-hmm. the late 1850s and early 1860s. You know, why did 27 million people want to go to the Chicago World's Fair? Mexico, when she moved to Mexico in 1902, the country's elites were experiencing their own kind of gilded age, just as was happening in the United States. What was all that about? And and why did that give her something of a, a stage for continuing the work that, that she was doing? She was affected very personally by the revolution of 1910 mm. in, in Mexico and its aftermath when um, Mexican politics moved far away from the kind of elite, elitist mm. and very class conscious life of Mexico um, for to being very leftist oriented, new art, new literature, new perspectives on Mexican culture that she didn't agree with. And yet, you know, she just kind of hung in there. But working on her life gave me uh, um, opportunities to to see that aspect um, of life the, the of the life that surrounded her. And then yeah. we could go on to, um, you know, think again about the institutionalization of, um, of her discipline and what that meant for amateurs and for women. I loved learning about her, but I loved also situating her in time and space. That, that for me, was um, the most exciting part of the work. What got you into the project initially? How did you discover her and what were the origins of your interest? I was working on another project. and That's how it always starts. Yes. You went down a rabbit hole. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's how it always happens. Yeah. And then one, I mean, it really is just one of those stories of one thing leads to another. And um, so it isn't a very... um, exceptional story. There is, at at one point, I discovered that someone else had worked on 
a history of her. His name mm-hmm. was Ross Parmenter, mm-hmm. and he was the music critic for the New York Times for many, many years. Oh. He became fascinated with Mexico and Mexican history and Mexican archaeologists, and somehow he, you know, focused in on Zelia. And for 30 years, he um, spent all his spare time finding out whatever he could about um, Zelia Natal. And he wrote a three-volume wow. manuscript about her. And there are only three copies of this manuscript. One's at Harvard, one's at Tulane, and one's at University of California at Berkeley. His work gave me a lot of a lot of help, um, and it also turns out that I guess he was something of a pack rat. <laughs> so that when he died, his family um, gave over a hundred boxes of his papers wow. to the university, um, to Tulane University, their Latin American archive. You know, was able to spend some time with um, going through that archive. When he was doing his research, there were still people alive who had known Zelia. Mm-hmm. So he corresponded with them. And that was a remarkable kind of archive to find. He corresponded a lot with, with her daughter, who was living mm-hmm. in, in the UK. So that was a wonderful experience, a wonderful find. The book was never, the manuscript was never published because it was just too long. Sure. And, you know, nobody wanted wanted to take it on, I guess. It, mm-hmm. Too expensive and not enough of a readership. So um, his work was really incredibly important for, for what I did. That did lead me directly to the next question I was going to have for you, is that I appreciate you discussing Zelia's tenacity in searching archives to follow uh, Mexican history, because I imagine that you had a similar experience in researching her life. And I was going to ask you just to talk about searching archives and where you had to go to find the information. So that was excellent to learn um, about the manuscript and, you know, some of those correspondences that you located. What were the other avenues that you took to locate more information about Celia? I started at the Peabody Museum at Harvard, where there are letters from her, because for 47 years, she was the assistant, special assistant to Mexican archaeology. Mm. It was um, an honorary title. Um, okay. it, it, it didn't involve any any money or anything, mm. but it gave her, this came through Frederick Putnam and gave her entree into um, museums and libraries. So mm. I started there. I went through the Ross Parmenter book. Then I went. I went to Tulane after that and spent um, spent time just going through the archives. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, where she had been very uh, Zelia and her one of her sponsors, Phoebe Apperson Hurst who was the mother of William Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. Patty first, Hearst. <laughs> um, I would say the first Rudolph. Uh, is it Rudolph? Um, the the media. He, yeah, he was a big media mogul. He was a, he was a media yeah. mogul, yes. Mm-hmm. And Hearst Castle and all yes, of that. Yes, yes. Well, she was the mother. She was 
the most wealthy woman in the United States during the 1880s and 1890s. She um, became a very close friend to Zulia and um, helped her buy her house in Mexico, wow. sponsored a lot of her, her work, essentially helped support her uh, in a lot of our activities. Anyway, um, Phoebe Hurst had become very involved in the museum uh, in developing a, um, an archaeological museum at the University of Pennsylvania. Mm. And she drew Zelia into that work. Okay. So once again, this was a place where there were lots of letters and things like that. And I also went to the uh, University of California, where there was um, Zelia had been head of an honorary association with um, uh, with the university, um, and that's where Phoebe Hurst um, endowed endowed a great deal, <laughs> lots and lots and lots of things at the University of California at Berkeley. So wow. there were letters there and letters. Um, about the Hearst commitment to the University of, of California. Um, I would have, I was in Mexico. Uh, I was able to go to her house. It is just absolutely fabulous place. Where in Mexico? Uh, it's in um, Southern Mexico city in a, in a part of the city called Coyoacan. Okay. And she was able to trace it back to the early 18th century at uh, the house. She rehabbed it and filled it with stuff, <laughs> the way Victorians filled houses with stuff. And now it is the headquarters of a National Library of Sound. Oh, wow. So if you want it to hear a speech, you know, from, I don't know, 1927, mm -hmm. you can find it there, or, you know, what a particular bird call is. So it's, Oh, that's so uh, fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it's, and they've done a beautiful job of, of rehabbing the, um, the place. So it's an ex extraordinary place. I would have gone more places. I would have gone to the Smithsonian. I would have mm -hmm. gone to Smith college. I would have gone to the UK where there were other, letters but then covid hit so i imagine I that's what you're about a, to say i had to you know make my contacts through um through the internet um sure. with those places because she knew a lot of very prominent people mm -hmm. whose letters were saved we have her letters it's amazing when she died her house was full of stuff and the people who took over the house um sold off some of it, auctioned off some of it, burned some of it in the backyard. Who knows what happened to it? So we don't have, we have letters from her. There are a lot of letters to her that are missing. So okay. there's a lot of her life that we simply don't know about and, and never will be able to um to find out about, and that's you know the the that was the most frustrating part. Sure, is if, you know I could never really figure out why her her marriage fell apart. Mm -hmm. Never figure out um, how um, how she ended up so much in debt when she died. You know these. Mm. I, I mean, she was she attended as as part of her archaeological travels she she was able to attend the coronation of czar nicholas ii oh, wow. in 1896 and i wanted so much 
to know, you know, what the dress was that she yes. wore and, you know, what were the parties she went to and things like that. And it's gone. Um, yeah. That's the unfortunate nature of studying history, particularly women's history. Yes. She played the piano and sang, but we don't have oh. any, you know, what kind of music did she like? Um, oh. Did she sing well? We, we mm-hmm. have nothing, nothing about those more personal yeah. Uh, aspects of her life. It's sad. It is sad, but the amount of work that you've done, I'm sure, felt daunting, but it's very impressive how many pieces you had to pull together to create a really great picture of her life and her accomplishments. Oh, well, thank you. I I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, that's wonderful. This is just out of my curiosity. So when anthropology became this institutionalized discipline i'm assuming it was more male dominated even though perhaps zelia and other women were some of the original pioneers of the discipline well yeah go ahead and speak to that and then i'm just curious if you've seen waves in the field of anthropology in whether it continues to be male dominated or not i know speaking for myself when i was studying history i of course took a bunch of anthropology courses too and my the anthropology professors at the college i went to i think there was one male professor maybe i don't even remember every yeah. class i took was from female anthropologists good question Be- once um Anthropology had moved into universities and it became essentially a requirement that you have a PhD in order to go out and do anthropology. I think it did become more difficult for women because it was women were only, you know, just then moving into universities to get undergraduate degrees. Get graduate degrees was a whole nother step, uh, difficult step. At the same time, I have to say that my impression is that anthropology um, is a, has been, was, has been, and still is a a discipline that's more open to women Mm. than other similar disciplines. I was trained as a political scientist and, you know, it's still, um, you know, there's lots more women in the field now, but it's still Mm -hmm. uh, male. Mm Mm-hmm. In the, in the sense of who's in the majority, you could certainly economics, uh, the, the other social sciences. Why do you think that is that anthropology is? Uh, well, you is know, I, I really, yeah, I really don't know the yeah. the, the pioneers. Some of the pioneers who um, who worked in the United States, um, digging into what was known about. Um, Native American cultures mm-hmm. were sometimes accepted by the men in the field because they could get into local communities in a way that the men couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they could learn more about um, family, more mm-hmm. about religion, more mm-hmm. about children and and um, child raising activities and mm-hmm. women's world and mm-hmm. food and things like that. Um, but it could be that it, you know, just some enlightened mentors in the early days, Franz Boas, who recruited Margaret Mead and mm-hmm. uh, Ruth Benedict and Zora Neale uh, Huston. 
that laid a basis for it mm -hmm. um, for other women to move into the field. But I, I think it is a credit to the discipline that it's that it's more open than um, um, than others. Definitely, definitely. And like I said, in my personal experience, I I definitely witnessed that when I yeah. was in school as well. I mean, Zelia was a remarkable woman and her story is really amazing. The accomplishments and the achievements that she had for discovering the history of so much of ancient Mexico um, is really fascinating. But why do you think it's important for history teachers to include Zelia Nutton? Nuttall in, in the classroom? Why is it important that children learn about her? Well, I think as we've been speaking, the fact that she was able to go beyond the constraints of her time. Mm -hmm. And I think personally um, that she was so good at insisting on herself. I, I think that that's so much. very, very hard for women to do. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect. You know, here's a really interesting, dynamic, um, once uh, once famous person, and what can we learn about how you had to be and how you could be as a woman 100, 150 years ago? Yeah. My own perspective is that her life and the life of other remarkable women really can help teachers teach about history. I mean, beyond the women themselves, but sure. what was going on in the world? Um, one of the things that that just um, drew her into the field was a fascination with natural history in the wake of Darwin. Okay, um, Darwin published the Origin of uh, Species. Mm -hmm. two years after Zelia Nuttall was born. Mm. And there was, it, it sparked um, a kind of amazing fascination with the question of, you know, how old is the earth? Where did we come from? Mm -hmm. Where did ancient civilizations come from? Mm -hmm. um, and encouraged people to find that the Bible, for instance, wasn't a good enough account to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And it really spurred a, a kind of um, fascination with with these anthropological questions. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think Zelia was caught up in that. And so I think from a, a teacher's perspective, that's a really interesting way of getting into why in the late 19th century did science become interesting to a lot more people. Sure. Why did the Gilded Age millionaires want to endow museums and opera houses and botanical gardens um, and remake cities? Mm -hmm. That was that was part of her life and part of what it made what made possible the development of the museums that were the home to the first anthropologists mm -hmm. um, and. Um, before they moved into the university. So I, I think it's questions like that, that her life shows us a lot about urban development, about nationalism competing with with Europe, um, saying we in the United States, um, you know, value culture just as you do. And we want to make Chicago um, or New York into, or St. Louis, into mm -hmm. a place of culture um mm. just like 
the capital cities of, mm-hmm. of Europe. So I, I think there's a lot um, in terms of, of what her life reveals um, yeah. that can be useful as a way of teaching, um, of, of seeing what history means. Yeah, I really like the way that you phrased it earlier, that following her life and her timeline provides you with a lens into all these other areas of history. I think that's really beautiful. Not focusing, I mean, focusing on her certainly and her accomplishments and her as an inspirational and remarkable figure, but also following her as a way to follow history and these different elements of history and different cultures and how things have developed over time. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. This was really amazing. I am so eager. Thank you so much to your editor for sending me the book. I'm so eager to finish reading it. I started it. I sent you an email about this. My husband is Hispanic. And so he loves tracing Aztec history. Uh, so he's, it's really been like a battle between the two of us. So me, <laughs> I, I keep telling him, I'm, I have this interview on Wednesday. I need the book back and he would not <laughs> give it back. So I now finally have the opportunity to read it. And I'm even more inspired to read it after learning about Celia more from you. So thank you again. This was oh, a really wonderful conversation and congratulations so. on the book. Thank you. And congratulations to you for all the good work that the Herstory Project is doing. I think it's um, tremendously valuable. And we hope our daughters and our granddaughters and our great granddaughters grow up in a in a world that's um, uh, that requires less energy. No, I love that so much. Yes. It requires less energy. That was a wonderful way to phrase it. I hope the same. I hope the same. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.